Welcome, my friends, to another episode of Is That Really Legal? with Eric Rubin. Spring is in the air, and today you're going to hear me talk with DJ Adams. DJ Adams originally comes from Texas, athletic woman, decides to become an actress, you'll hear why, travels to Los Angeles, and then starts a road of fame and fortune. (laughs) She actually became quite a successful commercial actress. She was the Tide Lady for a long time. And then she ended up working on a show called Roseanne. She will talk about that a bit. She's going to talk about a lot of things, and you're going to enjoy them. Um, Texas and Roseanne, even Selena, for those of you who are fans... And then ultimately we talk about writing and her experience of becoming a novelist. She's got a lot of romance published. She's going to talk about that process. And um, I think it's going to be valuable for people who are interested in acting, in writing, in show business, in people, as I often think it is. You know what else is great? Abe's Muffins. Yes, that's true. Abe's Muffins, they come in all kinds of flavors. Stick them in your face. They won't kill you. You can go to the website, isthatreallylegal.com. Leave me messages. Subscribe to this podcast. Leave a review. But most importantly, listen right now to DJ Adams. DJ Adams. Thank you so much for being on Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. I am thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. I, I don't know if I'll mention it in the intro, but I've known you for probably at least 20 or close to 20 years. We met in California when I was uh, working for Suzanne Brockman and I was on tour with her. And you at that point were an actress and a reader. And I don't think you were a published writer yet. I was not published, but I was writing. Yeah, and we met at something that the kids don't know about called a bookstore. Yes. <laughs> and it was, yes. was it Barnes & Noble or It Walden? was Barnes & Noble, and it killed me because that bookstore went bye-bye some time ago, and that was just brutal. That broke my heart. Oh, man, bookstores leaving has been such a pain to people like you and me. Um, I live in Brooklyn and we had an amazing independent bookstore that folded and we have a new one, uh, but it's just not the same. And I don't want to get lost in that cul-de-sac, but you, uh, first of all, you're talking to me now. You're in Los Angeles. I I won't give any more information. I know where you, I sort of know where you live. I'm not going to give people information. (laughs) Well, I kind of. I'm in your house. I've never been in your house, but um, I've been in the Valley. I'll say that I I spent a week at the Holiday Inn that's named after a TV star, Garland. Was that her name? Yes. Um, I want to say Barbara. No. Uh, She was the mother on Scarecrow and Mrs. King. She was uh, Jackson. Beverly Garland. Beverly Garland. Yeah. Uh, By all accounts, a great lady, lovely actress, did a lot of cool work. 
And I think she might have co-owned that hotel or something. Yeah, I, I think she did. She started up. But I remember picking you up for dinner from that hotel. Yeah. Wow. With our friend, Jason Gaffney. Yeah. We, Jason and I were out there for biz stuff as actors in a, yep. another lifetime. And <laughs> um, uh, without getting too lost in it, I later watched an episode of Mad Men when people were out in Los Angeles and they used that as the set, the pool yeah. and a bunch of stuff. Cause it's got that mid century look about it. It does. And it's very pretty. It's very pretty. Yeah. And it's really convenient for people who don't know LA to kind of everything. Right. Uh, but Absolutely. you, you are not originally a Los Angeles girl. You are a Texan. I am a Texan born and bred. That is true. And it's still in there and you like are fine. You don't, I mean, I, you know, I, you could Texas it up or down, I assume. Is that right? I, I can. If I visit home, I come back and I have a little bit too many. Hi, y'all. <laughs> Hi, y'all. Y'all doing okay today? Hi, y'all. y'all. <laughs> yeah, it gets there. But I, I would think that in a, when you first came to Los Angeles, that people would find that charming. Would that be accurate you know or inaccurate? Well, um, I got stared at a lot, but <laughs> I will say part part of my grade at school, I went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, part of my grade in my speech class was actually losing my accent. And, you know, I only got a B plus, so clearly it did not all go away. <laughs> well, I think that, you know, I had to learn how to get rid of my Long Island accent when I was an actor, because it just well, wasn't going to work. I'm, I'm, I'm married to Long Island and I love it. So I hear you. Yeah. Um, you, so backing up a second, you grew up in Texas. I know you were an athlete. You were an excellent tennis player until you injured yourself. But um, were you planning, what was your plan? Uh, were you planning on being an athlete, an actress, a brain surgeon? Like what was, okay, as a so, teenage D, right. what were you so thinking? My, my brother was actually a professional tennis player and tennis was kind of the family sport. Um, my sister was a gymnast. She wasn't into tennis, but it was a given that you were an athlete in our family. It was, what are you going to do? And actually, um, tennis was not so much my bag. Um, I got, I got beat on the court, like six love, six love by a kid four years younger than me. And I'm like, okay, I'm done with tennis. But I, in warming up for tennis, we had to run. And so I actually focused on running and my goal was then the Olympics. And I was just, you know, I thought I could do that. And then I actually had a tree fall on me. Oh. Not too many people know this. I had a tree fall on me, kind of crushed my knees. And that kind of crushed the whole running thing. But that's what I had all this time on my hands. And that's what got me into acting. I got to apologize People don't have video. This is a non-video podcast. I was laughing silently. And <laughs> it's just having a tree fall on you is not something that happens to a lot of people. Um, no, and, no, no. And, and, you know, I was, I was at camp. It was summertime. So it wasn't while I was during school and during like, you know, serious training. And, um, you know, I was maybe 13 or 14 and we were on a camp out with horses and 
you know, the horses, we pat them on the line and the tree was dead and we thought it's okay, it's so big, it'll hold. Well, long story short, the tree didn't hold, it fell over right on me and the counselor. And so there you go. But you know how in the movies, I watched a lot of television. I still loved, you know, acting and watching things. And I thought, okay, I'll dive and roll, right? The, the yeah. actors, they dive and roll and I'm diving and I'm in midair and boom, it just caught me. And that was that. So I was pinned under a tree and oh, I'm, took I'm, a few people to lift the tree and get us out. And I'm you know, fine. <laughs> I grew up in a very different kind of experience. No horses, very few trees, a lot of bicycles and cars and trains. Uh, right. But I can only imagine. I know that you've when I first met you, you looked like you were an athletic type of person, but I had already known that you had uh, been an actress. When you focused on acting, was that high school when that switch out? You said 13 to 14. Yes. Yes. And that was, that was probably eighth or ninth grade, I guess. And, and um, the, the very first thing I did was I played Anne Frank in the diary of Anne Frank and I auditioned and I got the lead, which I never anticipated as my, in my very first outing to try something. And it was just at the community center, but um, man, I heard that applause uh, and I was like, ah, sold. Drugs. Sold. It's the greatest they drug. Liked it. They it liked not, it. Yeah. But is yeah. that not the greatest drug ever? Yeah. Yeah. Just knowing that, that they appreciate what you did and what you were trying to convey. That is just, it's the best high. So unfortunately. (laughs) Now, how different, I mean, here you are, uh, a tiny blonde girl from Texas portraying uh, a German Jewish girl uh, during the Holocaust. What did you start this whole, oh, you have to research these things. I mean, I don't actually, what was your background? That was, I, I mean, besides being a nice Jewish girl from Texas, I mean, I can't say that I had a whole lot. I mean, I knew what everybody else knew as far as doing research. I mean, I was a teenager, so I didn't, for me, it was like, oh my God, can I learn all these lines? It was (laughs) not so much a technical thing as it was an, oh my God, I have to do this now thing. And do it to the best of my ability. I, I, I'm honestly, it was so long ago. I couldn't tell you how I approached it or what I did. Um, the, the next thing I did after that was a school play and that was, uh, Romeo and Juliet. And I got the lead in that over like older kids that I did not know how that happened. And trust me, they were not pleased with it, but, um, so well, maybe your started, talent was clear to people. I mean, well, that's a then possibility. I started, to think, I started to think, well, maybe I actually can do this. And so that was what started it. And then I became a drama geek at school and you couldn't get me out of it. So now and, was there, you know, well, the more, the more I did, the more I tried to get better at a, you know, doing it, doing it better. That's all I tried to do was just every time I got a new project, it was like, how can I do this better? Sure. And I mean, when people live in the middle of the country and they want to act, they generally go left or right. They either go New York or Los Angeles because those, I mean, some people go Chicago 
it's a strange but possible choice. I had a I had a friend go to Chicago. Yep. But that's it. I mean, those are really the three places where actors go. You know, if you're disagreeing with me, please write me at is that really legal.com, leave me messages. <laughs> but you know, so you uh you didn't go to college, you went to or is it a college, the academy? Well, the American Academy of Dramatic Arts is kind of I mean, it's it's a school. I it's mean, a conservatory I, program, right? I mean, I, this is not, I'm not being I'm not uh, being derogatory about it. I'm just saying. Yeah, you no, don't... no, no. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't. I would need to go to had to go to other, you know, a community college to get the rest of the what I needed. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, in terms of math and all of the basics, because school for me was dance, speech, acting. You know, it was just head first into into acting and everything that it requires. Um, what, what was it like to suddenly go from you know one of the few kids who could really do it to a place where everyone who was going was great? Oh my God, it was terrifying because there were triple threats and. And yes, I was a tap dancer. I did that from the time I was tiny. And so that was the one one part in dance because we hit every type of dance possible. That was the one thing where I was put in the front of the class and I could <laughs> excel. Everything, nice. else, everything else, I managed to do it and and look like I could do it. Um, but some of, those, some of those kids, man, they could belt it they could dance it they could act it and i was like oh shit i'm in trouble oh i'm sorry i should probably that's okay we're um you're fine with so so i thought uh oh so it was it was a real struggle and i it was quite the lesson for me and i've never worked harder in my life than i did but i i will say this you know after a year i because you couldn't audition while you were in school that was they didn't allow it and Mm -hmm. after a year I said, all right, I want to just, because I can't try to do anything while I'm here. And that's where the real world is. So that's what I did is after a year I was out and trying to make it happen. I mean, especially because outside the walls of that conservatory, Los Angeles, and I'm not asking the years, but pretty much any time that I'm guessing, there's a lot of TV and film production going on. Even, frankly, for those of you who've never been to L.A., you don't understand, there is a theater scene in L.A. I mean, right now there's nothing. That's a whole other conversation. But there was a semi-vibrant theater scene for quite some time in L.A., and I'm sure there will be. Did you, by the way, just as an aside, did you go to school with anybody that people would know, famous? Um, Well, yes. French Stewart was a year ahead of me. And I see French all the time on different sets and um, it's just like old home week. And it's the, so much fun to see him. We, we had mutual friends there, but we didn't really know each other there. I mean, I just knew who he was because he was in the grade ahead of me and I watched him perform. I watched all the shows that he was in because the upperclassmen always, you know, performed. Um, but it's so lovely to see him on set because I just adore that man. For people who don't know, he probably rose to fame for Third Rock from the Sun, right? Yeah, Third, Third and, Rock was probably his biggest thing. But he was—he did like the uh, uh, Inspector Gadget two movie, I think. I mean, he's done—he's done—he's been around a long time. His biggest 
unusual thing that I actually know is he's a spokesperson or he was for a long time for an unusual product. Do you know what it was? It's okay if you don't. I don't think I do. Clamato, the clam tomato, the clam juice, tomato juice thing. I I I don't know who drinks that stuff. (laughs) And I think there's like a drink with that in vodka. I mean, that sounds like a hangover cure slash dare, but I know it exists there. And if the people of Clamato are listening to this and they want to prove me wrong and send me some free Clamato or (laughs) other information, you know, they're free to do that. Um, So that's, I think that's lovely when you run into each other. So he, he clearly uh, enjoys seeing you too. And who wouldn't anyway? Um, And you've, you've already hinted that your life is on sets. So you, you have had a showbiz career before your writing career and then alongside your writing career, which I think is, you know, honestly, anybody would be happy with one track or the other. I'm just amazed that you're able to do both. So I'm sure our listeners want to hear more about that. When you first started your acting career and like, can you tell us some of the highlights for you of things that happened? Um, Well, I did, I did more commercial work than anything else. Um, I'll, I'll never forget uh, my very first commercial. When I saw that on television, I nearly fell over um, because I didn't know it was going to be on. And so that, that was fun to see. Um, Well, when you say you didn't know it was going to be on, I mean, you knew there were people with cameras. I mean, right. (laughs) But, but like, so with my Tide commercial, they told me when it was going to air. But the, the very first thing I did that wasn't like the my agent or the ad people called me and said, OK, you're going to be on during this this time at this market. And um, so I never knew. So I just happened to be watching television and I saw it and I was like, what just happened here? Um, but so when I. Probably the, the greatest commercial success was um, my Tide commercials in the 90s and um my daughter's like, mom, where are those? I still haven't seen those. I'm like, they're not on the internet because it was, you can't find them. And I don't know why, because you can pull up 1997 and see some Tide commercials, but mine is never one of them. You were, I I remember them and you were sort of the perfection or the ideal of the mother of two, like very young mother, but like very American and, um, very blonde, petite, perky, really happy about cleaning your clothes. Oh, well, you and, have to be happy. You well, have to be happy. Well, there was also the other side of commercials, which is the miserable or fighting. I mean, there were a lot, you know, commercials, as you know, better than I do, but I have done some commercials, but it's a movie. It's a 30 second movie where we have to be clear about who the characters are and what the story is. And we have to get through the whole thing in 30 seconds. And sometimes yes. the production values are better than a lot of the films that I've worked on. <laughs> I don't know about you. They really do a great job. They spend some serious money. They get great oh. directors. I mean, did you, yeah. you know, people who don't know that stuff think that commercial acting work is somehow less. Like I found that to be some of the most satisfying, fun work I ever did. Well, is that true I, for you? I found it fascinating the amount of detail, you know, exactly where I had to hold the the tide jug and where I had to place it and 
I mean, you know, you do each take, I don't know, 40 times people, I don't know if people realize how many times you're, that it takes a 10 hour day to shoot a 30 second spot. It's fascinating. And you get there at or, five in the morning. 10 hour days to do that. Right, right. And, and by the way, I worked on the Dunkin Donuts commercial many years ago, just as like, I wasn't in the foreground, just the back stuff. And someone had to eat something. And they had a bucket off camera. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Nobody swallows that stuff. And it's not, you may judge Dunkin' Donuts, qua sandwiches, whatever. But if you do 10 takes with that, it's not yep. going to be pretty by the 20th take. Yeah. So the spit bucket, luckily you didn't eat stuff, at least in the Tide, on, on camera. Correct. Did that, you ever do? Did not eat the Tide, yeah. <laughs> Did you ever <laughs> eat anything on camera? Uh... I don't think I ever did. I pretended to eat stuff on camera, but no, I never ate. I don't remember eating some. I never had commercials that were food. It was uh, jeans or, you know, or like I said, Tide. It, it's scary that I'm blanking on everything that I did. Oh, I mean, it's decades and you've done quite a few things since then. So yeah. I couldn't yeah. really. Did you... um? For people who don't know, a good national commercial, getting one of those can be, they can take care of your finances for a year. Um, yes. Well, and- I will say that after I booked the first one, um, my agent called me not too long after that. And she said, you've got a second one and it's going to be a series. And I said, what? Repeat that. And so <laughs> that, it, that after at that second point was when I discovered I was the tide lady. I was like the new tide lady. So I did six, six, seven of those commercials. And, and that's, yeah, that was my daughter's college fund. Yeah. Um, I don't want to get into numbers and I don't know what your numbers are. It's, it's fine. But everyone who does commercial work really wants to do a national commercial. I've done some regional yeah. ones and the way for people who don't know the way commercials pay is you you get a first fee for the session, but then your I'm not using it's not royalties it's um I'm blanking, um but you you get paid based on the market and how many weeks it's running, right? Um, but you know so if it's a national one that's a much bigger check than I had something that ran in Rhode Island which could be the smallest market. It was a Blue right. Cross and Blue Shield of Rhode Island. Oh, nice. And it was, I mean, I, you know, it was fun. I, I made some money, but it's not a national commercial. It's not a McDonald's. Right. It's not a Pepsi. It's whatever. Right. Well, um, and they, me, they flew me to Chicago a couple times, and um, uh, I think I went to Houston. They flew me to do regional spots for those places. And, wow. And so it was... It was lovely. I'd never flown first class before, so that was fun. Yeah, that's another thing is uh, under union rules and probably also when you're agented, they arrange for it. When you're doing those flights, they got to take you at least business or first class, you know, Um, and that's just, yeah, that is great. Um, At some point, either you decided to stop doing commercial work or like for me, I just, the calls just stop. Uh, You get to either an age or there's a shift in the kind of people they cast. So, and you can see it, people, if you watch TV, there can be the all American people get cast for a while. And then suddenly 
a whole bunch of ethnic people. Then the, the thing I hate is when they say they're looking for real people. And what I think they should be saying is they're looking for really good actors, not actors who look like they're actors. But, right. you know, I mean, because real people on camera freeze or don't know how to really do what you need to do. It's, right. I think it's just they're, they're saying they want someone as natural as possible on camera. Right. Right. Um, well, I didn't. I don't know if you know this fun fact. Um, you know, Jake on the um, is it Jake from Allstate? Remember how? So it, you know how it's a new Jake now. Yeah. So apparently, I, the old Jake was actually a real agent, and I don't think he they ever anticipated for him to do so many commercials. And it was like, no, we want our agent back. And so then oh. they got a new Jake who was an actual actor and not an insurance agent. I didn't know that, but. I, I do know a couple of other things. Of course, Jared, the subway guy, is in prison. I don't want to go too yep. deep into what that's about. People can look that up. It's very yep. unfortunate. Um, yep. And Flo uh, from Progressive is probably richer than Roosevelt right now because yep. they keep coming out with new. She's just constantly on my television. And right. She well, just, I think in situations like that, it's a buyout. They give her X oh. amount. They give her X amount and then she does, and that applies to so many commercials. Now she I mean, some, I, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure. Oh, I, I would, you have a lot more savvy about that stuff than I do, if that's the right sentence. I do know that she wears a wig so that she can act in other things because she doesn't really look like Flo. <laughs> she does oh, other funny. stuff. Yeah. And okay. I've seen her without the wig and it's like, oh, you might recognize her, but she's very different. So you don't think, wow, look, Flo's in this movie or Flo's right. in good. Good Macbeth. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think that's great. Um, at some point, though, what, what happened for you? Did you decide, I'm just not doing this or I want well, a kid or like what was So your... I had been working um, as a dialogue coach for, and I kind of call that my waitress job. So I'm working as a dialogue coach on set. So I was always in the business I wanted to be in. And so I was, you know, I would go off and do auditions and come back and do my dialogue coach thing. And everybody was really cool about letting me audition. And nearly every show I ever worked on as a dialogue coach, they, you know, every season they threw me something. So I was on camera at least once, maybe twice. Um, you know, I would do voiceovers a couple of times. So it was always good, but I'll tell you, it got to a point where they said, okay, we need you to do an audition in Santa Monica at 4.30. And when you're talking Los Angeles traffic, <laughs> and usually these auditions are slate your name, you show your profile, and that's it. It's not even getting a chance to prove that you can deliver a line or sell a product. And after dozens of those, I said, you know what? This isn't fun anymore. Uh, uh, when, if you get a call from your agent that says you have an audition and you go, oh man, it's time to bail. You know, it's interesting. The difference, having worked a little bit in LA, not really, but mostly in New York, uh, there were times in New York where I could have six audition days, meaning I could do two or three theater auditions in Times Square, do a commercial audition uh, in what's now known as the Meatpacking District, do something in the village and something uptown. And all it is is a subway ride. And I could do all of those in a day and not 
really feel stressed. Just feel like, wow, that was a good audition day. Having been in LA, seeing that you could do an audition in Burbank and then also have one, like you said, in Santa Monica or have one in Studio City for people who don't know, you know, there's no, sub well, there may be a subway, but nobody takes it. <laughs> so, so you're in a car and yeah. pre-pandemic, um, a ride from Burbank to Santa Monica, it's going to depend on the time of day. It could be hours. Yes, um, exactly. and, and yeah, it, it just to, when you say slate, you're not, I mean, you literally sit in front or stand in front of the camera. They say, what's your name? You say who you are, what agency or whatever. And then could you turn to the side? Okay, thanks for coming in. I had yes. a couple of those in Boston and it's a little like, like can't you, now, by the way, as you probably know, people are doing a lot of stuff from home, not just because of the pandemic, but it's a real saving. And the unions have been training people how to do quick auditions at home on their computer. So, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, we used to have headshots made, um, which was, you know, eight by 10 picture, you'd put your resume on the back. Now that's all computerized. You send somebody a digital picture of yourself with your re a digital resume, I saved tons in printing costs, but I'm sure there's a bunch of businesses that went out of business. I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, so, so yeah. So you got tired of doing that. Completely understandable. But you said you were a dialogue coach. Now, let's assume that a lot of people listening don't know what that means. So what what is that? Okay. So my job is to make sure the actors say their lines as written. Um, that's just the first basic thing. I mean, I also work as an acting coach for kids on set. Um, but in general, my job is to back up the director's vision or executive producer, depending on who has the final say on, on the production. Um, but it's basically when I'm working with an actor is to make sure they, they stick with the route we've taken for the character and to, and to do it the way it's written. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. You hear so many stories um, on one side of the spectrum is people who work with Aaron Sorkin, who like every um is written that way for a reason and you've got to do it. And if you can't get it done, they'll find someone who will. Then there's people who are like, they're freewheeling, but, on, the, on a completely different note, I'm confident that the WGA, the Writers Guild of America, and all these other unions might have some kind of rules about what you're allowed to improv and not improv. Have you seen, have you seen both ends of that spectrum or is it very strict? Most of the producers that I worked with want their words. And as a writer, I want their words because what? I know what it feels like to write the words. So from that aspect, I mean, some of the guys that I work with now, if they get somebody who's an ad libber, the first thing I will say, because we all know who they are, kind of, you know, if a comic comes in and they right. think their stuff is funnier, their delivery is funnier. So the first thing I'll say to the guys is, hey, we know what we're facing here. Am I beating this or are we letting them go? And it depends on what they say as to how hard I push. Um, I know we that did. I heard, oh, I've heard interviews oh, with people. Um, I recently heard Nathan Lane give an interview about Birdcage, or one of the things he talked about was Birdcage, and how Robin Williams, 
you know, they were, this is a film and not TV, but they were working with Mike Nichols and Mike Nichols said, I need it like the script. And I mean, everyone knows Robin Williams had, was brilliant and had a reputation for just doing whatever he wanted. He, they would ask for what they called a crazy take at the end when they felt they got what they wanted. He just wanted something that was off script and do whatever he wanted. Is that ever an option for any of the people that you work with? We don't have, we don't have crazy takes. Um, I've, I can't, I'm trying to think if I've ever worked with somebody that wanted a crazy take and I'm going to have to go with no. You guys have Um, time limits, you know, for people who don't know, like films obviously are expensive and it takes time, but with TV production, you guys have insane time limits because you have a week or 10 days, depending on what it, like you can tell me from the time that like they first get the script in their hands and do a table read to the time when you're doing the final taping before a live audience, let's say for a sitcom, that is not a lot of time to get it. Right. It's not. And when you're, and when you're talking a 40 page script and an actress to learn their lines with changes coming down at the every, every night for the new day, um, it's fast. And if an actor is heavy in a script and they've got 20 or 25 pages of dialogue to learn, it's, it's a ton of work. And so that's kind of where I come in and I sit down and go one-on-one um, with the actors. And sometimes I'll work the night before so that they're ready for the next day. I always work the morning of in hair and makeup. Some dialogue coaches don't work the way I do. They don't bother the actors in hair and makeup. And that's where I think I get the most work because basically they're in a chair and they can't get out. So they're stuck with me. <laughs> Well, I think it's good. You know, you, it's not like your first rodeo to borrow a Texas expression. You've done this a bit. I mean, you started doing this, let's just say more than 20 years ago, right? And you, uh, more, than, more than 30 years ago, my friend. Right. And you know, it occurs to me just as a side note, that for people who would think, oh, Dee couldn't do certain things. So she did this. People don't know the joy that's on your face and how this is clearly a calling for you. That you I love my job. I yeah. absolutely love my job. I I look at my friends at work and I come home and I say, look what I do for a living. Look at my job. I get to go to work and laugh every day. Yeah, I mean or hum- cry depend- depending on the script, but yeah. And it must be fun also, you know, for uh, when I did work with some famous people, um, sometimes I was a little starstruck. But I was often quickly clear that there's not a big difference. They just got either lucky or have tremendous talent. And you know, I, just as a quick, quick story, I was fortunate enough to work with Tom Selleck once. Tom Selleck is huge and incredibly handsome. And in my experience, a lovely man. He was very nice to me for the day that I met and worked with him. And he confided in me when we were working on something that he was nervous about getting fired. It was his first day on the project. And he just didn't feel like the director was liking him. And I remember thinking, holy crap, they're just like us. They are absolutely just as insecure. He had been Magnum for decades before. He'd done lots of stuff. He'd done Mr. Baseball by then. And this was a a movie called The Love Letter, which was a very sweet movie. Kate Capshaw had produced it. I met her too. And either people were just really sweet or, you know what, they're busy because they got to get this done. There's not, you're just at work. And I think sometimes people don't understand 
that you're at work. So when you're there, and here's a great example, you work with John uh, Goodman on a regular basis. And we'll get to that. My experience, it, well, I'm a big fan. I think he's fantastic. I've seen him be very serious. And I've seen him be hysterical. He did a movie with Al Pacino, where he was a detective with uh, Alan Barkin, very sexy. I think that was the one. Very sexy New Orleans movie. Um, and of course, he was in the, sh the HBO show um, Treme, where he was just fantastic in that, too. I think he can do anything. But he can. And I'm sure you have a good working relationship with him. Um, but like, it's a work relationship. Or is it, or actually, I, I don't, I want to put words in your well, mouth. So I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you about John. Um, I actually don't work with him. He, there are two dialogue coaches on the Connors and John works with the other dialogue coach. Now gotcha. we both go back to the very original 30, what, since 1988. Meaning Roseanne, the Roseanne show. Meaning Roseanne. Yep. Yeah, the original Roseanne. And, um, there, so the original Roseanne, there was a dialogue coach who was hired to work with the cast and Roseanne, for whatever reason, refused to work with her. And so they brought in someone else to work with her. And that woman left after 13 episodes. And after 13 episodes, everybody was terrified of her because that was when she was realizing she had power on the show. When you say and her, you mean Roseanne. Roseanne and I was there as her stand-in. So well, I gotta back I up a second. I'm I'm sorry, just again, you and I know these terms, but not everybody knows. So just so people are clear, a stand-in is literally a person who, when the actor's not working, they show up on set and they stand there so that the lighting crew, the camera people, everyone can get the right angles, the right lighting exposure, and everything yeah. so that actors don't just wait around because that process can take hours. Yes, Hopefully that process not, can take hours. Yeah, anyway, sorry. Takes hours. So. No, that's okay. And so I stood in for her and for Lisey Gorenson. And so in, when it comes to standing in for kids, when they're in school, you do their role in rehearsal. And then when they come out, you show them where to go. And wow, if, you're standing in, if you're standing in for an adult, um, it's what you said. So when we start blocking the show for cameras and lighting, that's when the second team comes in. First team is the actor. Second team is the stand-in team. And you do the whole show for lighting and for cameras. And then you call back in the actors and the second team shows them where to go. So I was hired as a stand-in initially for Lisi, And it became for Roseanne when she wasn't there. And um, because I had a relationship with her and had to give her notes on where to go, her acting coach, her dialogue coach left and they said, Hey, will you do this? Because they were terrified or so they shoved the little girl in. They figured she I, wouldn't be mean to you. I mean, look, you're a cute little Texas blonde. Uh, okay. Oh, if that, okay. And well, I don't so mean the, to be sexist. I, I mean, you can stop. No, no, I get or... it. So that I became her dialogue coach and it was quite the lesson I learned, but I've been doing it ever since. So I fell into it accidentally, but I got really good at it. Um, You're on the number one show, or it, we, I mean, Roseanne was huge. We were the number one show for years, and um, it was awesome. And after four years, she got an Emmy, 
which was awesome. But uh, yeah, so I was there. The first, well, now we get into stuff. I was there the first four years. Um, you even were on say, camera at least once. You played a waitress. Um, okay, so I played a bar floozy in one episode. Oh. I played a diner customer in another episode. And I played a nurse in another okay. episode. So, yeah, so I did three. Got it. Um, and then, yeah, it was three. I was thinking now, there was a voiceover in one, but that came later. So I interrupted your flow. You, I can't tell if you were wanting to say something or wanting to not say something. So you and I know each other a long time. And I know, just for people, look, everybody knows that Roseanne is a strong personality. And she had tremendous success. But she also was very controversial. Even at that time, there were difficulties with her then husband, Tom Arnold. Um, and I don't, I know, look, people can look at online and they can see the various things that happened. You don't have to be the one that talks about it. I don't want to put you in an uncomfortable position. But she has been controversial before the Connors or the second incarnation of the Roseanne show which was extremely controversial because there were topics that came up and a point of view that came up that was antithetical to what a lot of people wanted to see or said they wanted to see. And then there were certain behaviors involved and comments made. And at some point, the new Roseanne show, whatever it was called, became the Connors and it went on without her. Is that at least fair that I said that is all that accurate? Yeah, no, that's accurate. I mean, we got canceled. Our reboot was canceled and um, we all thought we were done and gone and it was really upsetting. And, um, and then we came back as the Connors and we were reincarnated um, with a new life, but with almost all the same people. Well, what's interesting is, you know, Unlike many sitcoms, you know, you have John Goodman, who has, I'm sure he's won an Emmy for something or some awards. He is a well-known actor across many fields. But also, and I'm blanking on her name, outstanding actress who played her sister. Um, Laurie Metcalf. Yeah, Laurie Metcalf, who was in Lady Bird and was fantastic in that. And yeah. who was part of the Steppenwolf Theater, if I'm not mistaken, with people like Joan Allen and John Malkovich. I mean, yeah. so you're you're stepping onto a set where the talent is drip. I mean, it's it's a rich, talented place with brilliant people. And all of these people were excited to be back and a part of this thing that was such a part of their earlier careers. And I would think that it, you know, the relationship that those people have with Roseanne would be either strained or, I mean, because in essence, she, some could argue, I'm being such a lawyer right now, but some could argue that she was responsible for the canceling of the show and her departure and the renewal and rebirth of the show indicated certain things. But I feel like everybody, every time I've heard somebody talk about it, there is, they've been very, very diplomatic. And I'm impressed. I'm impressed with the level of professionalism. Is that is that a good way to say that? Um, sure. I mean, I I am so blessed to go on that set and watch those people work every day. Um, 
they are they are amazing and um i'm i'm just so thankful that that we had the opportunity to come back and and to be there um despite what happened you know how many people work on that show because that's a you know when somebody leaves or could cause the end of a show it's not just one person that loses their job i mean and there's the cast but then there's so many crew members so like how many people work on the show in total um i i'd say between 120 and 150 if you want to go to like the outlying people that only work maybe a couple of days a week i would uh, it's between 120 and 150 you know you can look at that both ways uh number one is a tremendous responsibility and you can feel that responsibility of having putting all those jobs on your back and saying uh, you know if you're the star of a show you know i think of another woman uh is it rhett butler who had an incredibly successful show and then that had problems um you know i i filled in over there too uh (laughs) she's yeah we Uh, we could i've got i gotta write a book man no no i I, probably but well, it's interesting that these are stand- these are women who are extremely successful at stand-up comedy. And that was something that for years, you know, they thought sitcoms could be built around a stand-up comic. I mean, with Seinfeld and, you know, other certainly other people. Um, but, you know, that is, as we just talked about, that five-day turnaround and the pressure to be funny. Like, it's one thing to be funny at a cocktail party. It's another thing when like you walk into the writer's room and you have eight people trying to come up with a setup punch punch to end the scene. And everyone is like, I have nothing. <laughs> well, it's, I, I'll tell you this. We even have less time to be funny because as time goes on, there's more and more commercial time that cuts into the actual airtime of the show. So in the old days, we could probably go you know, 24 minutes and however many seconds. And now I think we're down to like 22 minutes and whatever seconds. So there's more and more ads, which cuts down on the actual storytelling. And depending on how much you shoot, that's how much you have to edit out. So I watch my show every week and I go, oh my God, that's gone. Oh my God, that's gone. It's like some of the best things don't make it into the show because there's just no time. And so that's kind of sad. What do you think about streaming? You know, when I think sitcoms, I think network because I don't really see what people call three camera or four camera shows. Is it four or three? The the, the standard, you know, like Friends is right. So four camera. So we don't see the standard sitcoms really translated to Netflix, Hulu. They very much feel like a network experience. Do you as do you see that changing so that we? get more content or more uh, un, uncensored sitcom activity? You know, uh, it, it all depends on the streaming services, I think, number one. Streaming actually is, is, is a rough thing because, I mean, those half-hour sitcoms, you know, actors aren't getting residuals like they do in streaming, which is you know, it's wrong. I mean, if you watch something and there's somebody in that show, that person, those actors should get compensated for it. So I'm, you know, streaming is, is a tough thing that the unions, I'm getting into a whole different thing here, but it's, it's, 
it's not fair to the actors. So I, I get streaming and how popular it is and why, but you know, those producers and that platform got into something and they're not giving actors what they deserve. And well, so I, I, yeah, I'm a member of those unions still, uh, for a variety of reasons. And they, they, they talk about new media contracts. But for people who don't know, part of the problem is the technology makes it very difficult to see how often something is streamed. Even to this date, Netflix can't or won't really tell you how many times something streams. They absolutely know how many times something goes because otherwise, how would they know if it's been in 80 million households? Well, they, they know. Yeah, but they, I mean, Kim Masters of The Hollywood Reporter, who has actually been a guest on my show. I don't know if you listen to Kim Masters and her show, The Business on KCRW. Um, she talked to the Netflix people. I believe that it's a little like somebody's tax returns, a former president, I'll say, where they change the numbers depending on who they're talking to. So when they're talking to certain people, it's like, we're in a zillion households. And they talk to other people, it's like, oh, we just don't know, or it's not that popular. And it's a, I think it, they're, not, they're not letting people into the machinery to see how they're gauging it. And I, mean, I think the actors always, without good representation, are always getting screwed. Right, but, but you know, even, even with podcasts, you know where, you know in what country you are and when someone's listened. Who told and you? It, <laughs> you, know. you know, my husband and daughter have their own podcast. Oh, you've got to tell us what's that and tell us quickly about it. Well, and then I want to get to your writing because this time is flying by. Uh, it is flying by. Well, it's called Dads, Daughters and Dollars. And it's a financial podcast. And it's basically my husband teaching my daughter about finances. How old's your but daughter now? Crap. He is 24. Crap. That is impossible. Right? Tell me about it. I, how did I miss that? I haven't seen I you. So for people who don't know, we haven't seen each other in easily over 10 years. Uh, but we see each other on social media. Um, right. Well, congratulations on successfully raising a daughter in Los Angeles. And Thank she you. is not an exotic dancer. <laughs> well, no. I don't think she is. No, no, no. Okay, She's a sports photographer, believe it or not. Oh, that's awesome. It is well, awesome. That kind of makes sense because your husband, when I last knew, was a director. He, um, yes, he yes he is, and he he's a amateur photographer, and so she kind of got her love from cameras from him, but she took it to a whole other level. Uh, well, maybe I can get her on the podcast. I'm sure you could, uh, and him as well. But I want to I want to do a slight detour for you because I don't want to run out of time without talking about your writing career. So when we first met all those years ago, I know you were writing, but you hadn't had anything published. And you were looking at, my memory was, there was a lot of auto racing romance possibilities. Why don't, why don't you, we'll go back to, we'll reel back the years a little bit and talk about the writing. How did writing start for you? Um, writing started, um, I blew out my ankle on the tennis court. So I was laid up and couldn't really do anything. And I had a dream and it was so vivid. And I just apparently talked about it for days. And my husband finally said, would you just write it down already? And I did. And three weeks, 
450 longhand pages later at writing for 14 hours a day, I had my first novel and I didn't know what it was. And so then I had to like research what I wrote and I just started from ground zero. And I found one of Suzanne Brockman's books. I had two in my hand and I thought, well, which one looks better? And I just picked one and I went home and read it and I went, oh my God, I had no idea. And then I quickly picked up everything she ever wrote and continued to pick up everything she ever wrote. But that, then I just started the whole process of joining a writer's group, um, the Romance Writers of America and learning about writing because I had no clue. I just wrote. And every meeting I went to, I came home and rewrote the book because I learned something new. And after six months, I went, I started bawling before the seventh meeting. And my husband said, what's wrong? I said, I'm going to learn something new. And I'm going to have to rewrite my book. <laughs> so that's, that's how that went. But thank God you were someone who knew from both sports and theater that this is an art form and this is a skill. You know, and in many ways, it's, it's perfect the way it was set up. Because you know, as someone who's an athlete, but you don't just one day decide, oh, I think I want to play this tennis thing. Like there's a lot of work involved and there's a, a fundamental of, of fitness, right? And then the same is true for acting. It's like, you don't just walk in front of the camera and hope it's going to work. Like, you know that your body is your instrument. You use your voice in a certain way. And you want to be coming from somewhere as a character and all the, you know, independent activity. You know, all these things that become second nature because you practice them like crazy. Now you were introduced to this new art form, which everybody thinks they can write because like they know how to make a list or they've read a book, but they don't understand the way you were discovering that writing involves so much more. And right. you, so you, you went through this process, which I, I frankly, I got a little goosebumps. It's very inspiring. Um, oh. And I, I'm very happy you went through it. I'm sure it's hard, but like anything else, it was clearly it worth was. it. So I wrote three books that were my practice books, I call them that were still under the bed. And so I finally wrote the fourth book. We were on a trip in Indianapolis to see the Indianapolis 500 because it was on my husband's bucket list. I never had, I never really liked car racing. It was nothing, we were there for him. I was just like, okay, let's do what you wanna do, that's fine. And oh my God, there was one female driver in the pack of 33 drivers. And I said, what if, and you know those two words, what if yeah. is what kicks off just about every book, I think. And so I wrote that book. So the rest of that vacation, I worked. And my husband was like, what, what happened here? Why, what? <laughs> so uh, I plotted and I wrote and I, that book came out of me pretty quickly. And it took 10 years to sell that book. But I did. I, 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 two things. And I, I'm the interrupter. It's just, I'm sorry, people. But two things. First of all. <laughs> Are you, most people fall into one of two categories as a writer. They either plot and like crazy, they do lots of outlining or they're what's called a pantser or a blank paper writer where they sit and they go, what am I going to write today? And they just start. So which are you? If I have to push you to be one, you're a plotter. plotter. I, I was always a plotter until I wrote a book that the characters wrote the book. So I... I have to say, I guess I was a panster on that one, but 
I never stopped writing that book because the characters knew once I had the idea, I didn't have a plot. The characters just took over. So being an actor probably helped you there. Do you think? I think so. I mean, everybody tells me my books, when when is that book going to be a movie? It's a movie. Your books read like movies. And I know that's because I'm, you know, I, I'm an actor and I work in television and, you know, that's, I visualize things. So that's how I write. And it's not something I do consciously. It's just how it comes out of me. But, um, but yeah, so. I like I this know. 10 year thing. I, I know it wasn't fun for you perhaps, but it's also really important for people who, who are listening, who want to write. It doesn't have to take year 10 years, but you should know this is not any of these endeavors, whether it's being an athlete, being an actor, being a writer, this is not about instantaneous gratification. You want instantaneous gratification, you buy one of those Pillsbury tube dough cookies, you cut them into pieces, you stick them in the oven, and like within a certain amount of time, you've got a chocolate chip cookie. It is, right, but that's ephemeral, (laughs) which is a great word, boys and girls, ephemeral. Mm. What you, you know, have you gotten to the point where you enjoy the process of writing? Um, it's hard. It's hard. I mean, there are sometimes I enjoy it when everything flows. And then there are some times where it just doesn't flow. And so, no, it's not enjoyable. But you still but, do it. But you still do it. I mean, I, I told myself I could not quit because I had a daughter watching me. And I refused to quit I love because that. she had to know, she had to know that if you want to do something, you can do it. You just have to work. Wow. So, so, so you're, you've got what, how many books are published right now? 11. And did you come to a time when you had an agent or didn't have an agent? What was your agent? Well, I'm talking about writing lit agent now. Right. What, um, what was that journey like? Because a lot of people think you don't need one. A lot of people think you do need one. What was your so, experience? So my book that finally sold, I, I did have an agent. Um, and unfortunately, I let her derail me and um, derail that first book for quite some time mm-hmm. because she wouldn't submit it until it was to where she wanted it. And I rewrote the book for her so many times that I kind of lost what, what I wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. And so that was a tough lesson to learn. Um, I, I let her go and I got an, another agent who I ended up having a similar issue with. Um, he he tried to sell a book for me and it was a, it was a two year process of revisions with this company before they would give me a contract. And they ultimately passed after two years of me editing without a contract. And when they finally passed, I said, why? He said, I don't know. I said, what do you mean? You don't know? Well, well, it's in my notes. Well, he never came up with an answer. And I thought after two years, I should know why. So I let him go. And then I got another agent who finally did the, did the job, but that was years. That was part of that 10 year struggle. 
Wow. I mean, I think that's also important for people to know that different people have different agent experiences and different publishing experiences. Um, we, we have been on for a while. I don't want to cut it short. I just want to say we should wrap up soon. Okay. I hope people understand that DJ Adams is a triple threat. Talking about triple <laughs> threats, you know, still athletic, um, still a lot of energy, uh, obviously still a great actress and obviously a great writer. What, what did we not talk about that you feel like, oh, I wanted to talk about this today? And it's okay if there's nothing. I I don't I don't know. Um, Are you, you know, excited? Just, yeah. Well, I was just gonna say, just the juggling of both jobs is is really hard. And after so many years of doing both jobs full time, I've now given myself the um, permission to just tackle one job at one time, so that when I'm working on set, I I don't work, you know, six or eight or 10 hours and then come home and work six or eight hours writing. Mm -hmm. So I've given myself a little bit more time to enjoy life because I missed out on so much doing that for so many years. And I just think it's important for people to know it's okay to have a life when you're juggling, you know, all of these things. Yeah. You were raising a teenage daughter too, by the way. Yeah. I mean, you had a husband, but he was working too, I assume. Oh yeah, that guy. Yeah, <laughs> you you've been you've got a successful Hollywood marriage. I mean, you guys have been together a long time. Yeah, we've been thirty-one years married and thirty-five together. It's crazy. In Hollywood years, that could be two hundred and fifty years. Exactly. <laughs> and by the way, people <laughs> who are like, "Well, she's not." Uh, you know, a star that opens a movie, and he's not a director that everybody knows the name of. That doesn't matter. Hollywood is this strange place where I, it's a I have to tell you. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I have to tell you. I I decided some time ago that I am happy to not be crazy famous and be crazy wealthy because of the problems that go with it. I I have a wonderful husband and a lovely child and a roof over my head, and uh, I'm I'm all good with that. You know, I couldn't agree more. I am. Um, I love the work that I'm doing. I love doing this podcast. My wife and I actually have movie star neighbors because where she bought our lovely apartment in Brooklyn decades ago is now one of the most trendiest places, most trendy places to live in New York, in Brooklyn. And nice. so, you know, I've opened the door for Carrie Russell, not in my building, but uh, to the coffee shop. And by the way, love the Americans. I don't know if you ever saw that show. Uh, I started to watch it, and I, I don't you, know why I didn't continue, but yeah. You'd be great in that show. I mean, it's over, but <laughs> I just think it'd be great because you would look like the, the typical like American thing, and then to have you turn and like have a Russian accent and say something to her would be like so mind-blowing. Um, but no, it's, it's very interesting. Have, well, you know, I worked with Suzanne Brockman, who was just the right amount of famous because the people who knew her loved her or whatever, but we could go out like the, she, her husband and myself would go do things. And 99% of the people didn't know who she was. So we could just do our lives. Right. And occasionally someone would come to the dinner table or whatever, and you're gracious or whatever. But could you imagine if you're someone who can't have dinner out? Yeah. No. Cause people won't leave you alone. 
Yeah. You must see that though when you go out in Los Angeles. I mean, well, do I stars ever come yeah, around? Yeah, some, some years them? ago, my sister was bowling, and Selena and Justin Bieber were bowling next to them. Right. And I know Selena. I, I worked with Selena on Wizards of Waverly Place, and and I did a year and a half on that show. And my sister calls me. She says Selena's right next to me. I said, oh, "Tell her I said hi." And so my sister goes over and she said, "Hey." Selena, I'm Deanne's sister. And she's like, oh, how's Deanne? So, you know, she talked to him. Within 10 minutes, they had to leave because people spotted them and they couldn't go bowling. And right. so it's a, it's a sad, scary thing. And, you know, I love that girl with all my heart, but the fame that she has is is hard to, it's hard to negotiate. Yeah, well, I guess you and I are really lucky. And we're grateful. I, I, I concur. We are, we are lucky. And I'm gonna, on that note, I'm gonna say, you know, DJ Adams, thank you so much for being on. Is that really with? Is that ah? Is that really legal with Eric Rubin? I'm tongue-tied because I'm just so glad to see you, and it's been so nice to catch up. Thanks so much for being on with me. Thank you. Isn't she awesome? And what an interesting and varied career. I just love when I have people on who show you there's no one way to live your life and there's no one way to go about success. And we're lucky and fortunate and happy and it's good stuff. Are you doing okay? Are you eating some Abe's muffins? You know they're allergen free. They taste good, they come in a lot of flavors, and the brownies come on. Please subscribe to the show. Please rate the show wherever you grab it, whether whatever service you get it on. And you can leave me messages or ask me questions by going to isthatreallylegal.com and leaving a message there. we got more great people coming up. It's very exciting. I hope you'll stick with us and listen to them. Take care of yourself. Keep wearing your mask. Get that vaccine. We'll talk to you soon.